Hi, I'm Megan Davis, the founder and lead storyteller of Spend Love and Lamb. I'm a narrative consultant. I help people and businesses tell and find the right stories to change our world. In this podcast, I talk to dreamers. I talk to rebels. I talk to people who are changing our thinking. And I invite you to go on this journey with us. Join us, won't you? My name is John Bell. I'm an actor and director, theater producer. I uh, helped establish uh, the Nimrod Theater Company in in, uh, Sydney in 1970, which I ran for 14 years. And in 1990, I established the Bell Shakespeare Company, of which I was the artistic director for 25 years. And now I'm uh, stepping back into something like semi-retirement, but still uh, directing and acting for uh, other companies and keeping my interest in the theater. Amazing. You've studied, you've acted in Shakespearean drama and plays and comedies. And so you're, you're really at the forefront in Australia, I think, on the authority on, on Shakespeare. Would that be a fair statement? Well, I've certainly done a lot more than most people, I think. I've devoted <laughs> most of my life to Shakespeare since I was 18 at high school. Yep. Since then, it's been my greatest preoccupation, along with, mm. along with creating new Australian drama and mm. uh, some uh, within opera, etc. But I guess Shakespeare is my mainstay. At the very young age of 18, what first piqued your interest in Shakespeare? I think my initial response to Shakespeare was uh, to the language, which I found so extraordinary. I didn't believe people could talk so amazingly well and so much imagination. And also mm. the, the, the drama of, uh, of his plays, the, the issues that are taken on and how they are resolved. He's always dealing with... Uh, very primal things and very major ethical and moral uh, debates. And uh, mm. even in the comedies, those things, are uh, they loom large. So the combination of the language, the characterization, and then these major issues have always fascinated me. And you can go exploring those for a lifetime. Oh, absolutely. I think it's fascinating how all the issues are still the issues. They're all still the same issues, but we're not not drastically different to a person of his time in the way that we're experiencing and dealing with the world and the drama of interpersonal relationships, struggles for power, you know, struggles to be understood, seen, heard. Our human response is not that much different, is it? No, it's not different. Human nature hasn't changed very much. And it's only 400 years. We think that's a long time, but it's only a, a flea bite. <laughs> in the history of mankind, you know, we're at least uh, yeah. 70, 80,000 years old as a species, maybe more than that. And mm. so 400 years is only yesterday. And we certainly haven't changed that much in that short time. No, I think what's interesting in our current environment, you know, we're so fascinated by the future. And we talk about how, you know, we're, we're, it's never, the rate of change has never been so fast and exponential. And um, we're barely keeping up. And Look, that's true for us in this moment in time, right? We can't we can't argue with that. But I think what's really interesting is that if we look at Shakespeare and what he was doing, he was an innovator. He came up with new business models. He came up with new constructs and ideas around what entertainment industry should look like because it was he was very formative in in the plays and the theater and, and building that as a entertainment source for 
for London at the time. And he also was an innovator. He created new words. I mean, he was an incredibly innovative person sitting at the razor's edge of what innovation was like in the industry he was in 400 years ago. I totally agree. He was a great innovator in language. He created thousands of new words. Uh, He invented and added to our our vocabulary. But he also uh, revolutionized not just the theater itself, but the idea of uh, personality. Until Shakespeare, people were thought of as types or archetypes subject to the influence of the stars or their chemical makeup in terms of the, the, the humors. And Shakespeare dispelled all that and said, we are not... Uh, creatures of uh, the stars or of uh, of chemical imbalances. We are all a, a bundle of contradictions, and uh, that's what being human is like. So don't don't try to be consistent in characterization because there's no there's no, no such thing as consistency. We're always uh, recreating ourselves and have the opportunity to, to recreate ourselves and make ourselves better. Whereas in the old-fashioned idea of an archetype, you were stuck in the type you were, and that was your fate. I think Shakespeare gives us the optimism to say uh, we can grow, we can develop, we can change our minds, we can improve ourselves. Right. And I think that's a really interesting point that you're making. He was perhaps an innovator then with with personality and, and character. He was using empathy as a tool to create a world from their point of view and their eyes and allowed us as the audience to experience that world through his character's that's true. eyes. Yes, he had a very good education at the Stratford Grammar School. Um, his father was the mayor of Stratford at one stage, so Shakespeare and his three brothers all got a free education at one mm. of the best grammar schools in the country. And a lot of their education was in debating in Latin and occasionally in Greek, but debating and having to prove, represent both points of view, the for and the against uh, in a debate, which was great training for a dramatist. You don't take sides. You see, you see the argument or the, the problem from all points of view, from both the protagonists' point of view. And uh, that is a great tool for a playwright. You don't preach, you don't take sides, you simply show the dilemma and let the audience figure out how they would deal with a similar situation. Yeah, incredible. I didn't know that. Um, that's so interesting. So when I think about some of the the common struggles with um, people in human-centered design, so people who are solving problems and looking at the world from the point of view of the people that they're trying to solve the problems for or create a new product or service for. They're, they're trying to see the world from the perspective that you just explained, so not for or against, but simply building the world, living in it, navigating through it. What decisions would I make? How would I do this? And this is something that comes up again and again and again with people in that that type of role is there's a a lot of confusion between what's empathy and what's sympathy. And also, as they are embarking on this journey of solving a problem and seeing the world from another point of view, it often becomes lost or confused for them because they don't have the right tools to be able to consistently tap into another point of view, something that actors, on the other hand, don't struggle with is world building and connecting empathetically with the character and seeing from their point of view. That's largely true, although I think actors still have that problem of trying to identify with uh, all sorts of people. It isn't as easy as uh, as you suggest. You have to do a lot of uh, thinking and homework and background investigation and to try to get inside that character. It can mm-hmm. be 
very easy sometimes, but generally it takes a lot more effort. And uh, you really have to um, search around and find people in the world world around you who remind you of that particular character and uh, give you some insight into uh, how you can unlock the mystery of another human being. But certainly our job is to um, be open and listen and uh, thereby develop empathy. I think you're right to distinguish between empathy and sympathy. We should feel sympathy, of course, for everybody, but empathy is uh, something deeper. It's an understanding. It's walking a mile in somebody else's shoes, uh, which I think uh, we all have to do. And I think that is one of the pleasures of acting, is to put yourself in someone else's place and live through their dilemmas or their joys or heartbreaks. It really uh, does expand your horizons and make you look at people differently. Of course. And yeah, thank you for clarifying. It's not easy. It's definitely not easy. And it is a struggle for everyone. But actors have the tools to understand how to start creating an empathetic viewpoint. Would you agree with that? I think that's true. Some have it more than others. Some people have a a very acute instinct and can put themselves right into someone else's place uh, without much effort. For others of us, it's harder. It's a more plodding routine to try and find a way in. But the best actors, I think, are the ones who have that uh, just an instinct in terms of empathy and also the courage to leap in and um, portray that without any inhibitions or uh, narcissism or ego just Mm. to take on that other person's uh, dilemmas or situation and play it truthfully. Uh, That, to me, is acting at its best. For non-actors, or even actors who, you know, they don't have that direct instinct but have to work at it more, is there a, a place that you'd recommend, this is where you should start to begin that exploration and that journey? Yes, I think it always comes back to the, the, the text, the script, really research it very, very carefully and thoroughly and try and get underneath those words. Why does the character use those words or that phrase or this kind of language? How genuine is the character being? How much is that? Uh, is he trying to deceive somebody or put on a false front? You have to really, really get inside the language. Uh, if that can't help you enough, then you've got to look around Spend your time looking at people in the street, on buses and trains, to try and find someone who reminds you of that character and give you uh, another entry point. Uh, mm. Both things can happen. It's, it's uh, an observation of human life and also a, um, a dedication to unscrambling the text and getting right inside it. And those two mm. things could work in conjunction. So that's really interesting that you've mentioned getting inside the words and when I look at the process that human-centered designers use, they go out and do interviews. That's a huge part of what they do. So they create interviews and they verbatim record the language that people use, what, how they describe their lives in their situation. And when I look at often when, when groups come back and they're taking all these interviews and often they do a lot of shadowing as well and they'll walk around with people and observe them and actually record them. Mm. See what they're doing and what they're picking <clears throat> up and how they're interacting with their environment, um, especially for nonverbal populations. This is extremely important. And so they're, they're doing all this research and they're taking it back. And when they're in that part of the journey, for them, they're highly activated. They feel excited and connected because they're directly with the population that they're trying to solve the problem for. But I think that 
when I've observed through teachings, I often teach human-centered design processes such as design thinking. I find that where people really struggle, though, is that they don't know how to interpret language. So they know that it's meaningful, but they don't know how to start saying, okay, actually right here, this is a very important statement because they have so much to go through. It's not like a script where there's a, a logical build or a sequence of, of a storyline because they have, they have just like a big kind of, of just pile of things. And then they're sorting through it and trying to start building that meaning. And we're story animals. Like we have to start building stories. Like how does this all connect? How does this all make sense? Would there be anything from your point of view that they should look at to start drawing meaning out of these things? Or maybe there's a process with script writing or, you know, when you're starting to create a new story, okay, how do we create hierarchies of meaning here to start really building these characters or drawing them out or understanding what the journey should be or is for these people? Well, I often start with language um going through dictionaries and finding definitions of words and seeing where the words come from. Are they mm. old French? Are they old Latin? Are they Anglo-Saxon? What, where did they come from? What did they mean originally? And uh, if you get onto the origin of words, it's somehow how surprising how it unlocks a word for you and you see how much the word has changed its meaning. You have to be fascinated with language for its own sake. I think that's, you asked me earlier what first attracted me to Shakespeare and I said it was the mm. language. I couldn't mm. believe that this language could be so magnificent and so moving and so evocative. So for some people, that just doesn't happen. They don't find the same uh, enchantment with language. But I think if you go through uh, dictionary and uh, you know, see where words originated, that can some, sometimes spark your imagination and you really want to uh, unlock the, the secret of each word. But basically, great language, great poetry just sweeps you away just to hear it spoken and to find the, the emotional drive of it and the need to speak. Why does the character need to use these particular words in this situation? That's a, a hint to the character's emotional state and uh, you know, what is driving him or her. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. It's, it's that authenticity of the expression that starts really building their worldview. And then once you're once you're at this place where there's some particular words that really start unlocking that, that opens up a, a, a way forward. Yeah. Yeah. There was a project that I worked on where it was a, a youth alcohol culture change project. And so these are young people between the ages of 13 and, and roughly 18. And we were looking at the stories that they were telling about using alcohol and what their thoughts were and what the attitudes were to start building language that they used and reflected back at them so that we could start some conversations about alcohol use. And we are so mindful of, we can't go in using adult language and telling people what to do. We have to directly grab their terms, their phrases, their slang, whatever it might be and create messages directly from their mouth and repeat mm -hmm. it back to them. Yeah, and, that sounds very sensible. And we had some really amazing conversations. It felt peer-to-peer, -peer, even though we were directing the content. So, you know, adult world was directing the content. It became a young person speaking to another young person in their own terms and in, a, in their own words. And we had, for an alcohol culture change project, we had a huge response. 
which was amazing. And I think it was that language aspect that you referenced. Yeah, I think uh, once people feel that they have mastered a language or a way of speaking, it, it does a lot for your self-confidence. You feel you're suddenly articulate. And that's, I think, what inhabits a lot of young people. They, they simply don't have the words. They feel inarticulate. They feel inadequate. And mm. so to, uh, to honor the kind of language they are using and give it uh, you know, its due respect would be very uh, enhancing for them as individuals. Yeah, it was definitely empowering. So another topic that I wanted to explore with you was the Shakespearean sense of empathy. So we did touch on that just, just before, how we aren't creatures of the stars, but we are these extremely complicated beings and to have our faults and our strengths and his ability to build those worlds through the eyes of the character have allowed him to create timeless pieces of work. Because as we were saying, our nature has not changed much from 400 years ago. We are often, we are still struggling with a lot of the big questions. We're still expressing ourselves in ways that are very similar. And I'm really interested to delve deeper into this idea of how he was instrumental in using empathy as a tool and creating timeless work. Well, I think, um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, listening is where you start. I think Shakespeare was a great listener. If you look at the different kinds of language he uses, it's not just one size fits all. He understands the, the language of um, the aristocracy and the upper classes, but he also is very in touch with uh, the, the working class, the lower class people, country people, artisans and mechanics, people he grew up among in mm. Stratford-on-Avon, uh, his neighbours, country folk. They're often his strongest and most convincing characters because uh, you know he spent so many years in their company. When he became a successful actor-manager, he spent a lot of time at the court. He was Queen Elizabeth's uh, favourite company and then King James's favourite acting company. So he spent lots of time observing the upper classes and the aristocracy, and he could uh, sketch them very convincingly. But I feel his most original characters and the most profound ones are those uh, the, the very common country people that he grew up amongst. And it was mm. listening to them and understanding their, um, their preoccupations and uh, loving their language, loving the way that they spoke. That's where you find him at his most authentic. Do you think that his ability to listen and to reflect, so he was becoming like a mirror in, in a way, so he was reflecting back what he was hearing from all these different types of people. He was able to reflect this back out. And then the different segments of the audience who were watching the plays, especially obviously in the public theater, were able to say, hey, that's me at different levels. Yes, I think that's very true. He could uh, he could engage both kinds of audience: the the sort of the the working people, the apprentices, the uh, people you know of the street, as well as appealing to the uh, the educated, the nobility. He had a, a way of communicating with both of them at the same time, which again is quite rare. But then, of course, that was the nature of the theatre, and uh, his living depended on being able to play to a wide audience and attracting that kind of popularity. And being an actor himself, as well as a writer, he understood what to leave out, what the actors could do uh, without language, as well as what, what they can do with the power of language. So uh, he, ne he never overwrites. He always gives you just enough to delve 
he's never verbose in the way that the words are unnecessary. They're always just what is needed for the situation. I think that's something that modern people struggle with. Like we'll say, I'm a modern person, you're a modern person. So in our, our time, we have so much available to us, so, so much information. We can literally look up anything we want, and if we can't find it, we can find the book or we can find the person or we can, we can find the resource of anything we want to know. And I think that this overwhelms a lot of people, and they don't understand how to cut back. They don't understand what to leave out. It's almost like this drive, like, I must fill every moment of every day. I must not allow anything to be interpreted. I must be very clear about everything. But I think that true power in communication lies in playing to different levels, lies in leaving out certain things so that they become interpretable and so that they can evolve and so that we can play with it and we have the space to play with it. Yes, I think that's true. I think we are bombarded with information from all quarters, all day and night. And uh, you see the people on a bus or a train, they're all stuck on their iPhones. And uh, if you ever see anybody with a book in their hands, that's quite an extraordinary uh, aberration. Most of us are so much into social media and, as I say, bombarded with information from the television screens particularly, that Mm. uh, we're not selective. We don't... um, settle for what we actually need or want. We just are lost in a, a wash of information and entertainment that is nonstop. Even mm. if you stand on a railway station, they've got giant <laughs> screens broadcasting at you. Uh, there's no yeah. escape. There's no escape. And that's why I think it's, it's great to get away from it all for a while and just, um, you know, turn off your mobile phone and your iPad or whatever and uh, you know, yeah. have a quiet weekend, refresh the brain. Yeah. It stops us from doing what you said was crucial to start understanding and building worlds and connections. It stops us from observing the world, the people, listening, listening to how people are speaking. So we're still, we're still absorbing, we're still being stimulated, but in a way that's not directed. There's no story arc in front of us. Like we're not observing something watching something on Netflix or watching the world around us. So we literally at every moment have no idea really what's going to happen. And we don't really know what a person's going to say. Truth is always stranger than fiction, right? We, you can't make up what you really, what you hear and what you see. And if somebody had written a book sometimes about some of the things I know that have happened to people in real life, they'd say, well, that, how could that even happen? That doesn't even make sense because the Mm. world doesn't make, it doesn't make sense. Right. But I think that having the ability to let go of that and just observe is so powerful, as you've said, uh, as one of Shakespeare's greatest tools and his way of understanding the world is, it was through his acute observation. From your perspective, where's the best place to start? Is it just sitting on a park bench? Yeah, yeah I think uh, we, we all look for a way out and... Uh... Even if you go walking on the beach, you'll see people coming at, coming at you still on their mobile phones, even yeah. though they're trying to take a break. They cannot put that iPhone down. It's got to accompany them everywhere. So you can seek a quiet retreat. Then you take your mobile phone with you, and uh, that kind of cancels out the operation. I think there are ways to try to get away from it all for you know healthy periods, just to uh, give your time 
give yourself time to think and to reassess where you are and what you want. Because most of the stuff you get through social media and on your phone or your television screen is, is trivia. And you really don't need all that much. You can get by without most of that sort of stuff. Yes. And if you're in a research phase for a project, there's yeah. this process where you're meant to ask very open-ended questions. So you're not leading and you're not trying to get the person to solve the problem through their answers. So you're asking extremely open-ended questions. Mm-hmm. If you were studying an, a person as a, as, okay, here's a person that I want to study because I want, I think that they're an insight into a character that I'd like to develop. Are there certain questions that you might ask or is there a place that you might start from? Yes, I think every, that? Every, every case is different. When I was playing uh, one particular character in The Winter's Tale, Shakespeare's romantic comedy, there was a character who was uh, extremely complex. So I went to a psychiatrist and I said to him, here's a case study for you. And I described what the character did and said. And the psychiatrist said, this is a classic case of uh, paranoid schizophrenia. Everything that you've told me about this character adds up. So uh, even though Shakespeare didn't know the term paranoid schizophrenia, he knew the symptoms, he knew what was going on. That's how, how little we have changed. But for me, having that information scientifically verified was quite important. And I could play the part with much more confidence, knowing that that was the mental state of that character. And I think similarly, you can go to uh, other people to, to check out your characterization and say, you know, I'm playing this lawyer or I'm playing this military person. Do, do these things ring true? Is this, is this the appropriate way of playing it? So I'm always looking out for uh, verification and, uh, and confirmation from people uh, in whatever situation I'm performing in. Right. So this character was exhibiting extreme mental duress and mental health issues, and the person that was qualified to answer those questions was able to verify the observations of someone who, would, yes, as you said, wouldn't have the, the words for it. But, of course, we all had the same problems back then as we do now. That's right. Yes, that's fascinating. And I, I think that what you're really saying with a lot of the, I guess, the processes used or the inroads to creating these empathies and ways of exploring is that it's curiosity. It's this curiosity about the world. Yes, I, I think curiosity is the basic impulse to all great art, that you are curious about everything and everybody and how things work. Look, you might take Leonardo da Vinci as an example of that, someone who was scientific and always examining every aspect of plant life, animal life, human nature, the workings of the human body. Uh, he was a scientist as well as a painter. And I think that curiosity, how do things work, where do things come from, uh, why are things the way they are, that prompts any artistic response, whether you're painting or writing a novel or acting a role. You have to be open and endlessly curious. And that if you are, then things start falling into place for you. And that means that you have to let go of quite a bit of ego, like all ego, really. I think so. I think you need a certain degree of ego to even set out to um, write something or paint something or perform something. There's a certain self-confidence that is necessary to undertake that. But once you've taken that first step, you have to lose your ego in, in, in the world and what you're trying to create. 
and let it let those characters or that story speak for itself and don't try to manipulate it or put yourself in between the, the story and the reader. Mm. This is something that is very difficult for teams working on projects sometimes. And not just people working on projects in business. It, it, this happens when you're rehearsing as well. Like sometimes we have to remember you put the project first, you put the play first, you put us holistically, we must all succeed and we must put the greater, bigger achievement ahead of our own selves. Otherwise, we won't get there. Yes, and if you're working as a team, then of course you have to subjugate your own ego in terms of the, the overall ego of the team and become part of the team. That's where teams fall apart once mm. uh, egos start to manifest themselves. And the same thing if you're putting on a play, even though you're playing the leading role, you still have to allow room and voice to all the other characters around you and not just think it's all about you. It's not. It's about the ensemble. Mm. Is there any uh, favorite things or pieces of advice that you'd like to give to ensure that, that that ego doesn't take over, that the team is preserved or to reset people's minds when you see it's happening? And you, you keep your eye on the project. What is the aim of the project in the first place? What are we all working towards? And then how can we all best serve that? It'll be necessary that some people have a greater input, more experience than others, but that shouldn't become the dominant factor. That's just part of the mix. Basically, we're all there as a team to achieve something, and that has to take precedence over self-interest. Mm. What do you think Shakespeare would say as a director? I would say study that text, get inside the words, and if you're inside the words, you'll understand where they're coming from. You'll understand the impulse and the desire that's driving you. If you want some help, I'm here to tell you <laughs> what I intended. Yeah, that's pretty magical. Thank you so much for those really beautiful insights. really helped me understand what I think I was doing instinctually to a degree, but not harnessing fully enough, especially when I think back on this youth alcohol culture change. And it's just finished, so it just wrapped up about a month ago. And now you're in that phase of reflection and, you know, what worked, what didn't. And we're writing up some reports on that. Good, good. Okay, Megan, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very yes, much. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and thank you to my guests on this episode. If you found this episode interesting, please share it with your friends and rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. Curious about how the power of narrative could work for you? Check out my business website, www.spendloveandlam.com. That's www.spendloveandlam.com and lamb.com.